Hello, hello. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? It's Thursday. It's actually Thursday. Good news. One more day to get through after this, and we hit the weekend full stride. Obviously, this weekend is exciting for many reasons, uh, one of which, though, particularly is because it's the championship weekend in the NFC and the AFC. So all eyes on the four remaining teams, one of them being the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people, there's a, a whole map that's going around that basically has shown us that most of the country is begging, just just begging the gods to give the Ravens a win because they just don't want any more of, of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Isn't that sad that we've gotten to the point where it's not even about football? They are just so tired of the antics that are surrounding the Chiefs that they are just dying for the Ravens to take home this victory and go to the Super Bowl. A lot to be said there, uh, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Uh, we're talking about the fact that the Chiefs, they're making a run. They're deep in the playoffs at this point, but... Ahead of this AFC championship game, there was a very bizarre story coming out of Kansas City. Hold on to your knickers, everybody. Now, listen to this. Three Chiefs fans, back on January 7th, they got together. There were actually four or five. Let's get to those details in a second. Three Chiefs fans were found dead. They were found frozen to death in the backyard of their friend's home, where they all got together to watch the Chiefs' final season game on January 7th. That was the final final game of the regular season. Here's the strange part, though. Not to mention, like I just said, let me reiterate, they were found frozen to death in the backyard of their friend's home. But the homeowner, their friend who lives there, insists that he had absolutely no knowledge that their deaths occurred in his backyard. So the three victims, their 38-year-old Ricky Johnson... 36-year-old Clayton McGinney, and 37-year-old David Harrington. Their bodies all discovered on January 9th. That's two days after the game. Their bodies were discovered when the fiancé of one of these guys requested a welfare check because they obviously didn't come home from the game. And police say that they found one of their bodies on the back porch, the other two actually in the backyard. But... From the very start of the investigation, Jordan Willis, that's the friend, the homeowner, says he has no idea how this happened, no idea that it even happened in the first place. He claims to police that he was sleeping inside the home with noise-canceling headphones on and heard absolutely nothing. So as a result of this, police never, even from the outset, began to investigate these deaths as a homicide. Already very strange, right? I'm pretty sure... I'm just going to insert a little bit of opinion here that if I was at home, I would have an idea that my friends didn't get out safely. Anyways, let's keep going. A lot of people close to the victims, like myself, having a hard time believing this story. So one of the friends of these guys said, this man was inside his home alive while my friends were dead in his yard for Lord knows how long. She put this in a Facebook post earlier this month after all of the details started coming out. And then she went on to say they were all hanging out since after the game Sunday. He knew people were looking for them. He read messages about people searching for them on Tuesday, which again, two days after the game when their bodies were found. My husband banged on his door for 20 minutes, this woman continued to write on Facebook. 
She then said, my friend banged on his door and then busted a window and yelled and announced her presence while she's inside and still nothing from him. Then the cops come 10 minutes later and he comes out nonchalantly in his boxers with an empty wine glass in hand. Nothing is adding up here. Dave, Clay, and Ricky need and deserve justice. Okay, so already this is getting even stranger. For two days, this man, it's not like he's cut off from civilization. He's, I'm not going to say totally because I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't know the details and I'm not going to pretend like I'm inside this guy's head or, or know everything that happened. But just from an outsider's perspective, three of my friends had just come over to watch the game on Sunday. I haven't heard a word from them since. Obviously, these are good enough friends where you have them over for a game. And I haven't heard a word from them and I'm not following up with them. And then additionally, I'm just completely cut off from the news. I have no idea what's going on. I'm not on social media. I'm not watching television. I'm not listening to the radio. I'm not hearing from people who are probably well aware that we're friends. And finding out that they've gone missing and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what happened to them? And then additionally, I'm not going into my backyard at all or my back porch and seeing like, oh my God, there's three of my friends are dead out here. Okay, all of this is very weird. Obviously, Willis at this point has lawyered up. So he's having his lawyer, John Pacerno, do all of the talking for him. So his lawyer got in front of the media, in front of police, and this is how he described the night of January 7th. Listen to this. Around 2 a.m. or so, uh, he was tired. He wanted to crash. Uh, he said goodbye to his buddies. Uh, he was on the couch asleep. They left, as far as he can remember, through the front door. Um, and that's the last time that he saw them. Uh, and he didn't know anything was wrong until uh, the police knocked on his door at approximately 10 o'clock on Tuesday evening. Okay, so let's just reiterate a little bit about what the lawyer said. He watched his buddies leave through what he thought was the front door while he was essentially falling asleep on the couch, right? Okay, so claiming maybe he's a little bit out of it. He's already dozing off. Maybe he already put his headphones on. Anyways, that's the gist that we got from his lawyer. But after all this, another twist, according to the local Fox station in Kansas City, Fox 4, where, by the way, I used to work, a fifth friend has come forward saying he was at the watch party and said that when he left in the early hours of Monday morning, so remember this was about 2 a.m. that the lawyer said everyone left, Willis and the three dead friends, now dead friends, were still all awake together watching Jeopardy. So this completely contradicts Pacerno's statement that Willis saw his friends leave. And by the way, he said it was only his three friends. Now there's apparently four friends. And that then he went to sleep, you know, with headphones on. Additionally, Pacerno had also told police that his client only received messages from people that were worried about the whereabouts of the now three dead men, only Facebook messages. But in fact, now it's coming to light that Willis, the homeowner, also received two text messages from family members of these guys because they were panicking about the whereabouts of their now deceased men. Willis and Pacerno, his lawyer, declined to comment on the discrepancy, but something definitely feels off here. I can't be the only one who thinks this. Also, the father of one of the victims, Ricky Johnson, feels like something is off. So 
This is what he had to say. This was a statement that he put out. I personally think they got drugged and were drug out the back door and put in the backyard. I want to know exactly what happened. Okay, so the father thinks that potentially these guys were drugged. A possibility, right? Also, I'm just going to put forward an extra fact that Willis, the homeowner, who, again, claims he was asleep on the couch with headphones on, is a scientist. So whether or not he has access to different types of drugs, now these could have been like more recreational drugs that these guys were all doing together during the game, watching the game, celebrating the game, or there could have been something more like lab-specific type of drug. I'm not exactly sure, but this was a thought put forward by Ricky Johnson's father. This statement immediately dismissed by Willis's attorney as nothing more than baseless allegations from grieving parents who are struggling to understand the tragedy. It's a possibility, right? Though, now we're also finding out that a doctor who's chiming in on this investigation says that it is plausible that the three Chiefs fans were exposed to some kind of drug that contributed to their very, very bizarre deaths. The doctor said, quote, it's one thing for a person to tragically end up in a snowdrift after leaving a bar, but it's a completely different story for three people to end up dead sitting on somebody's back porch after a party. And this is according to Dr. Caleb Alexander. He's an epidemiologist with John Hopkins University. Again, yes, very strange. Something else that's very strange is just the fact that, you know, with what this doctor is saying is correct, you know, it's very weird to have them end up in the backyard and just sit out there and freeze to death when they know that their buddy, they just left their friend's house. They know that their house is right there. They could get back inside. Someone made the point, I was reading in one of the articles, why wouldn't they just bang out a window, bust through a window? Because obviously we heard one of the family members or friends <clears throat> from from these three that that froze to death, busted through a window to try to get the attention of the homeowner two days after the fact. So very simple for these guys to do the same thing. Why they would not do that feels like something was off. They, they weren't maybe understanding of the situation. Maybe they were completely out of it. They were in a daze. Finally, Willis, the homeowner, or the renter of the house. I don't know the exact, if he rents, if he owns. He has since moved out of the home. So obviously he doesn't feel comfortable being there anymore, which is also very strange. Because if it was just a freak accident, I mean, yes, there would still be some horrible memories to have living in that home, but I don't feel like you would jet that quickly. That just feels weird to me. There's a lot of things that feel weird to me. I want to get into all of the potential... I guess, realities of this story because there's so many different directions our minds could go in after hearing all these details. And again, police are not investigating this, this as a homicide. That is strange to me. Let's bring in Amber Harding and get into this a little bit more because you all know I love true crime. Amber, I have to imagine as a woman, you're also into the true crime, trying to solve these murder mysteries that we really just have so few details about. But you heard everything that I said. So what do you think? Do you think that Willis, the homeowner, 
we should be looking into this more than just some type of freak accident? Or do you think that police should wisen up a little bit and probably start looking into the fact that this could have been a homicide matter? Definitely. This I've been wrapped up in this story ever since I first read about it a couple of days ago, because I'm with you. Like This is fascinating to me because none of it makes sense. It kind of reminds me of the Idaho murders that happened um, in the sense that just none yes. of it makes sense to me. Nothing adds up to me. But if you recall, um, the entire time that everybody was so confused about those Idaho murders and trying to add up, put, trying to put the details together, police were saying they didn't have any leads. Well, we found out later that the entire time they had eyes on Brian Koberger and eventually arrested him for those murders. So it's very possible that the police just aren't tipping their hand here, I think, and maybe just purposely leaving people in the dark while they do this investigation. The families don't believe the surviving friend. I don't blame them. If this happened to my loved one, um, I would certainly be demanding answers as well. But it's also hard to believe that he has anything to do with it because I'm no master criminal here, but I feel like if I were involved in a murder, I probably wouldn't leave the dead bodies just like chilling on my back deck. Right. So I, it's going to be, really that's a good point. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see when these, this toxicology report becomes public, um, the cause of death, all that sort of thing. That's a really good point. You wouldn't want the bodies just outside of your home it would make more sense for you to be like, hey, why don't we all go out drinking? And then, you know, I'll drive. And then if you were to drug them, maybe you somehow veer off into a side road. I mean, live, having lived in Kansas City for several years, I can tell you that once you leave like that downtown area, I mean, it all gets very rural-esque. So there are plenty of places that you could easily drop dead bodies. My other thing is what's the motive here if this guy were to have wanted to kill his friends? I mean, it's one thing to want to kill one friend, right? You maybe have something against him. You're after his fiance, his wife. You you have something out for him. But to want to kill all three friends that you've just spent the evening with feels very strange, unless maybe you're mentally ill and you have voices in your head that are like, you need to kill all of these people that are in your home. But I just can't at this point come up with a motive as to why or maybe he had a new drug that he was trying to test out and he wanted to test them. And he, these were his guinea pigs. I mean, now my mind's going in all different directions. <laughs> Can you think of any like motive if this were to be the case? I mean, I, I, I can't. Um, I, I've never wanted to murder my friends, but I also. I, Me either. Yeah. I mean, we don't know these people. Who knows what their relationship was like, but it's also entirely possible. Um, like you discussed earlier, they could have been under the influence of drugs, whether that be recreational or otherwise. So it's very possible that the surviving friend also was drugged. And maybe that is why he was apparently asleep on his couch for two whole days and didn't notice dead bodies in his backyard. So I, it's the possibilities yeah. are just like swirling because who really knows, you know, I don't, it could have been a completely outside person uh, that came in and and did this if it if it does in fact end up being foul play. So it's it's really hard to say, but it's going to be interesting to see these developments over the next few weeks. Yeah, this is really strange. And I, I, I have no doubt this is not going to be the end of this investigation. Like you said, there could be some things happening behind the scenes that we are already unaware of. 
So Amber, when we have more details or even some type of conclusion, you have no choice but to come back on and, and we delve into it and discuss in full. Uh, but one thing we do finally have a conclusion to, which everyone has been wondering about for, I mean, at this point, essentially the whole season, what's going to happen. Jim Harbaugh has a new home. He's on to the NFL. He is now officially going to be the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. And I mean, what a way to wrap up your college career. I mean, you're winning a national championship onto the NFL. And really, I don't think he could have found a better home for himself. It just, the fit makes complete sense. Absolutely. And I think I was here a couple weeks ago and you and I sat right here and said that exact thing that we really think he's going to the Chargers because it just makes too much sense. He's got a franchise quarterback there already in Justin Herbert. He's a, he's a great offensive mind. So I think priority number one is going to be making Justin Herbert go from really good to great and really living up to that potential that we've been discussing over the last couple years. But I think the biggest thing here is just the amount of personnel control that he's going to have. I mean, when he was going through his negotiations, he made sure that he was going to be able to bring several of his assistants with him, including his defensive coordinator, his son, Jay, who runs special teams. Now, the last time he coached in the NFL uh, with the 49ers, he famously butted heads with the GM. And that was ultimately kind of what made him, um, what was the downfall of him there in San Francisco. But now they've actually hired him as the coach, the Chargers have, before they've hired a new GM, which I think is really telling because that either means that Harbaugh is going to have a say in that hire, or at the very least, the GM is going to have to be comfortable just coming into Harbaugh's system. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's just so many factors. Uh, the stars seem to have aligned here. Uh, I'm really excited to see what can happen with this franchise that now is really looking to rebuild. Uh, you've got a tremendous mind in Jim Harbaugh, you know, already having some momentum, having won a national championship. Uh, this is going to be really cool to see. And um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited yeah. for this next chapter in Jim Harbaugh's in, in, in Jim Harbaugh's career. And, you know, it's it's funny because there have been year after year where he said, no, I'm I'm not considering the NFL any longer. I think it was a couple of seasons ago he had said this was it. And then last season, we kind of saw him throw his hat in the Denver Broncos head co coaching situation and then that ended up not coming to fruition and then now here we are a third year in a row where it actually has happened so I think it's been on his mind for quite a while uh maybe he hasn't wanted to admit it as far as you know he has up to this point but uh off to the Chargers and we'll see what happens with them next season um maybe they'll be Super Bowl bound uh when we're talking about this next year uh, maybe so I mean that, that's something that you have to remember is like Right now, Jim Harbaugh is getting a lot of, uh, of praise and rightfully so for the work he's done at Michigan, but he was really successful in the NFL during his stint in San Francisco. You know, he was there for four years. He took them to three consecutive NFC championships. He even took them to a Super Bowl where he ended up losing to his brother, John and the Ravens. And he was the NFL coach of the year in 2011. So he had a ton of success in San Francisco, but yep. I think, I think he was just waiting until he got that national championship. Now that he's done everything that he can do in college football, I think he's, he's really wanting to get that Super Bowl ring. Yeah, for sure. Like you mentioned, he did have a lot of success with San Francisco, 44, 19 and one. 
pretty pretty good record to cap off those four years from 2011 to 2014, or or maybe three years rather. No, four seasons, four seasons. Um, but speaking of the Super Bowl, Amber, I feel like we're having a little bit of deja vu. Um, it's almost like sporting organizations just don't realize the error of their ways because now we're finding out that the NFL is going to be holding a night of pride celebration on February 7th in the lead up to the Super Bowl. Uh, like, I feel like we just went through this earlier this fall with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and it did not go over well with the franchise or with fans. They still went through with it, and people were just like, what? Like, why would you completely stick it to your fan base like this? But now the NFL doing what looks like the exact same thing. Uh, They're claiming this evening aims to advance the futures of LGBTQ, LGBTQ inclusion in professional sports, as well as the NFL's commitment to this same group's former and current players. Uh, this is the third year in a row that they have hosted it uh, in partnership with GLAAD, which is the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Uh, and I just am having trouble understanding why we continually hear events like this happening. Listen, it's not to say that the NFL does not support all of its different types of fans, but Amber, if there were to be a night celebrating, you know, the, the, the straight white fans of the NFL, I mean, this would be a freaking huge deal. I mean, there would be a conniption. Why are we talking about the sexuality of fans? I mean, this is just not something that I believe has a place in sports. And you would think after what we went through with MLB earlier in the fall and there being the whole fiasco surrounding it, that maybe the NFL would just quietly put this to bed, but that's evidently not the case. Yeah. It just, it's, it all, the whole thing just feels like such a disingenuous virtue signal. I've heard the term rainbow capitalism and I love that. I love that term because it is, it's, it's true. It's essentially just kind of using under the guise of inclusion, um, selling rainbow merchandise and, you know, upping your ESG score. And that's really what this is. They, they don't play football during Pride Month. So this is the NFL's chance to kind of check that inclusivity box, get their ESG score. It's going to be a big dog and pony show four days before the Super Bowl with a red carpet, musical performances, a panel to talk about the importance of inclusivity in sports. So I think there are a number of other companies sponsoring it too. Google, Starter, I, I saw both of those names. Oh, uh, well, so that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's really just a red carpet opportunity for some big corporations to get together and pat themselves on the back. It has nothing to do with football. It is, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And additionally, <clears throat> this feels very reminiscent again, also of what the Dodgers did, because recall they did their, uh, I guess, honoring ceremony. They called them heroes, by the way, let's not forget they did it at a point before the game in which the stadium wasn't even so full. It was a point in which fans weren't even really filtering into the stadium quite yet. So they kind of thought, okay, we'll still do it, but maybe it can be swept under the rug just a bit because we're not getting so many cameras and attention on this ceremony. And that seems to be a little bit of the same case here because it's happening on February 7th, which I just looked at my calendar. That's the Wednesday before Super Bowl. So I'm, I'm curious where they're going to hold this ceremony. And B, most Super Bowl fans don't get to town as early as Wednesday. That's a long time to be 
in the city in which the Super Bowl is being held, especially, you know, if you're going with your family or whatever the case, it's expensive, you know, to stay and eat and all that for so many days leading up to the actual game. So this feels also like the NFL is doing it, but they're making sure to do it when it's still swept under the rug just a little bit. Maybe not so many people will be there. Maybe not so much media attention. Uh, It's not like they're doing it the night before the game or even worse yet on game day. Sure. And that's why it feels like such a disingenuous virtue signal, right? Because it's not going to have any sort of prominence for the game itself. And like you said, this is the third year in a row they've done this. But the reason I think a lot of people are raising eyebrows now is because it's a partnership with GLAAD. It's an LGBTQ advocacy group. And GLAAD made headlines during that Dodgers fiasco because when the Dodgers first announced that they were going to honor these these drag queens that mock Christianity, Catholicism in particular, um, fans didn't like that. You know, that's a huge Hispanic population, um, many of whom are Catholic in Los Angeles. And they really didn't like that. They pushed back on it. The Dodgers rescinded that invite. Well, then Glad swooped in and put pressure on the Dodgers and said that they weren't being inclusive and that they were um, being very, it was shameful for them to rescind this invite and just bow to these bigots. Um, And so they essentially put so much pressure. They, they bullied the Dodgers so much that they decided to bring them back. But like you said, they decided to do it like before the game while the fans were trickling in just so they could kind of uh, say like, Hey, we did it, but we're kind of hiding it as well. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. It does feel disingenuous. Feels just like a little bit of pandering virtue signaling uh, with, with no real, uh, no real effort to make, you know, a, a real difference, uh, if any difference even needs to be made, which I don't think it does. I don't even think we should be talking about this kind of stuff when it deals with sports. I don't think we should be talking about this kind of stuff when it deals with most things. I mean, at the, at the you know, when you really strip away everything, we're talking about someone's sexuality. Why are we talking about someone's sexuality in so many different public places? Like, this is not something that needs to be discussed. I don't want my sexuality being discussed. I don't want your sexuality being discussed or yours or yours or or anybody else's. Um, Okay, moving on to a bit of a more positive story. Um, Notre Dame has a new kicker, Amber, uh, but very different from what we would expect in most seasons. This guy, his name is Eric Goines, but the kicker here, no pun intended, is that he's 30 years old. And an Army veteran, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, He last kicked for the Citadel back in 2015. He graduated high school in 2012. His last kick that he ever had uh, up to this point, a game-winning 43-yard kick to beat Coastal Carolina for the program's first ever playoff win. So pretty cool. He's definitely a talented guy. At 30 years old, I don't know if his skills still reflect those of his in 2015, but I guess we're going to find out pretty soon here. Uh, But he served for... Over seven years, uh, he was an infantry officer before becoming a signal corps officer in the U.S. Army. And uh, he spent time training Ukrainian soldiers. He rose to the rank of captain. So he's, you know, got a, a really nice, solid resume underneath his belt. And now he's returning back to school. He's doing the Master's of Business program at Notre Dame and also a member of the school's MBA Military Veterans Club. So therefore making him eligible to join the Notre Dame football team. But what do you think about this? I mean, again, he hasn't kicked a ball since 2015. I mean, it's a nice story. I like it. It's a good, it's a nice feel good one, but is this a kicker that's actually going to bring success to Notre Dame's team? 
you know, I, I hope so. I, I mean, I love this story. I love I hearing so about too. stuff like this. Um, we heard there was a similar story this past season. Uh, Virginia's kicker was actually a 34-year-old former Marine helicopter pilot, uh, which was really cool. And he ended up making the team. Um, and he actually, that was his, <clears throat> his debut for Virginia, was the first football game he ever played in, which was amazing because he had never played football before. But while he was out... Um, and on his, uh, I don't remember the word for it, um, while he was out in his deployments, he was teaching himself how to kick on YouTube and he was practicing out in empty airfields. So, and then he came on, he came back and he walked on to the football team, which is, is a really cool story. But the NCAA has a rule that you have five years of eligibility and that eligibility pauses if you go to active duty. So um, like you said, he kicked at the Citadel before he decided to enlist in the army, which he was actually really successful at the Citadel. He had some NFL scouts that were interested, but he said it was awesome to be told that I had NFL interest, but it I was ready to do something that felt more meaningful. So I just thought that was, that was really cool. And I'm, I'm cheering for him. Definitely cheering for him. One more twist to the story could be he goes and plays at Notre Dame. I know it's a two-year program, I don't know, he, maybe he continues through and completes the two-year program, or maybe he's so successful at playing football, at being a kicker again, that NFL scouts start to show more interest in him. And the next thing we know, we have a 30-year-old, or even at this point, 31-year-old, entering into the NFL as a kicker. So this, this could be a movie in the making, Amber. Yeah, I love it. I mean, at 30 years old, I hate to say this, this makes me feel ancient, but 30 years old is really getting up there for a lot of positions in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. But kickers and punters, kickers and punters have some more longevity there. They're not getting hit as often. Really, they have they 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 really do just have one job. Um, that's not to say that they aren't super skilled. I certainly couldn't do it, but um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that a 31 or 32-year-old, however he's however old he is at that time, could essentially have enough success to have a shot at least to try out for an NFL team. Well, we'll find out. Like you just said, um, I'm feeling pretty ancient too when I talk about stuff like this because sometimes I just go to yoga class and I'm like, well, that was that was enough for the day. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it on that note. So um, I definitely would not be one who would be able to, you know, enter into a professional sporting league at this point in time. But anyways, Amber, thank you so much. Um, is there anything you'd like to preview ahead of your column this week? Yeah, last week we got a ton of good feedback. We I listed, um, I asked a large group of women what their dating app red flags were. Um, and so we got some really good answers there. Well, then I asked the guys, the readers to, to send me theirs. So I got a ton of really good answers there. So it's going to be really funny. So definitely check out Women's Planning tomorrow. Um, and we'll be talking about more online dating. So I guess before I let you go, though, let's get into what were the biggest red flags that women deemed while dating? Well, there were, there were seven that, I mean, I got hundreds of answers, but they all boiled down to kind of the same seven responses. They don't like seeing other women in photos. They don't like seeing people's kids in photos, things like that. That seems pretty, pretty self-explanatory, but the top two answers that I got were, Ooh. they don't like, they don't like shirtless photos of men, like the mirror, the shirtless mirror selfies. Yes. Um, and then they don't like when men get too sexual too quickly um, in the conversations when they first start talking on the app. So tons and tons of women. These are, 
Very, very, very valid points. Uh, definitely the shirtless photo is like, okay, like if this is your best quality that you need me to see right away, then I worry that there's not much else there, right? Because if you are intelligent, successful, you probably don't need the shirtless photo even on your profile at all. And then also, yeah, the too, too sexual, too soon in the conversation, that's always creepy. It's like, I don't know you. Like, I relax, right? Like, just relax, buddy. Um, okay, I love this. Uh, I can't wait to recap what else you find out next week from the men uh, because red flags are not exclusive to men. Women have red flags as well. So we should all be called out for the red flags and hopefully we can make some adjustments and make the dating world uh, in our current state a slightly better place because Lord knows right now it is a freaking jungle out there and I'm just thankful that I'm not in it. So that's all I have to say. Uh, Amber, thank you so much and we will talk to you soon. Awesome. Have a good one, Charlie. Outkick the morning. We'll be right back after a short break. Stay tuned. Okay, well, speaking of dating, I'm sorry, I, I've got to bring it up again. I know everyone doesn't want to hear about it anymore, but you are all aware that Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift still an item. And Travis Kelsey's brother, Jason Kelsey, I mean, what a season it was for him, right? As a Philadelphia Eagle, roller coaster would be an understatement. There was extreme highs, and then we went to extreme lows. The Philadelphia Eagles obviously already eliminated from the playoffs. So what is a brother to do besides go support his other brother, Travis, who is still in the NFL playoffs? Well, obviously, Jason happy to lend his support. But also, come on, like I said, the season was a roller coaster. The man is ready to let loose. He is ready to let it all hang out. And he did that quite literally. He was shirtless, as we saw during the game, chugging beers. No problem. Usually they say no no shirt, no shoes, no service. Well, this was not the case here, right? Jason can Jason Kelsey can do whatever the hell he wants uh, as it relates to the NFL. And this, coincidentally, also while he's decided to act a fool, was the very first time that he got an opportunity to meet baby bro's girlfriend, Taylor Swift. Uh, and he took the time on the podcast this week to recount the whole story. Here's what he had to say. There was not enough cameras on the suite where you could see Kylie, though. I wanted to see her reaction to all of this so bad. I'm not going to lie. I gave Kylie a heads up. The moment we got into the suite, I said, I'm <laughs> taking my shirt off and I'm jumping out of that suite. And she said, Jason, right. don't you dare. I was like, hey, it's letting you know what's happening. I'm not asking for permission. I'm doing this. Once a Kelsey man's determined, there's no f stopping him. And she was already telling me to be on my best behavior because we were meeting Taylor. This is hilarious. I was like, Kylie, when I met you, the first day I met you, I was blacked out drunk and fell asleep <laughs> at the bar. This is part of the charm. This is part of the Jason Kelsey charm. I want to make my best first impression. This is my best chance. My best first impression is the worst impression ever. So I, I, I could just build Set from that, that point. Nice oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is amazing. Okay, so Kylie is Jason's wife. So he told her from the beginning, he's like, I'm getting shirtless. I'm going to be chugging beers and I'm going to jump into the, you know, the stands. And Kylie, obviously, as a woman, was like, do not do this. This is not a good idea. Taylor's going to think you're a complete moron. But he's like, I'm doing it. I don't care. And he did it. And guess what? The reaction from Taylor, 
Travis would tell his brother, she absolutely loved you. Man, all I have to say is Taylor at this point has to be very well aware of what type of family she is entering into. She's met everybody. She's met Mama Kelsey. She's met the brother. She's met the dad. And from the looks of it, she gets along with all of them swimmingly. I don't know much about Taylor's family, but sometimes opposites attract. Or maybe, who knows, maybe Taylor's family is also pretty wild. I have no idea. But um, there's rumors out there, everyone. There are rumors that the engagement could be taking place this summer. I'm just reiterating. I don't know for fact. There are rumors, though. And I'm just saying, if the Chiefs do get to the Super Bowl, you're going to hear a lot more about it. And that's not up to me. That's just how it's going to go. Uh, Okay, everybody, that is it. The show is over. Time for you to all go and have a fabulous Thursday. And also, make sure to follow me on social media at Charlie on TV. Tomorrow is Friday. One day left in the week, so I will see you then. But until then, uh, a little note from Jerry Springer. Take care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) See ya.